We shouldn't talk about this may contain graphic descriptions and or explicit content that may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, everybody. I'm Key. And I'm V. And this is We Shouldn't Talk About This. Hey, Key. How are you today? I am good, V. I was hoping we'd be able to record in person, but I'm at an undisclosed location instead. Well, I hope you're not in an undisclosed location that was the same kind as our victims were in our past cases. No, I'm in a safe, undisclosed location. Okay, good, good, good. So, Key, do you have trouble with, you know, making money? Would you like to make more money? I would like to make more money. So check this out. I'm part of this dope program, and mm-hmm. how, how it goes is that I'm below one guy... Mm-hmm. he's below two more people mm-hmm. and there's one person ahead of them but if, you legit. Come, but if you come under me then you can start recruiting also and the mm. more you recruit the more you make oh wow okay so basically you recruit me then my money goes to you but i recruit people and then their money goes to me exactly you are a quick study Wow, you know what? That definitely sounds like a good money-making venture. Sign me up. You got it. And just to just to make sure you understand, I have a diagram here that's the shape of a triangle. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. So the the there's the first guy who started this is at the top. Yep. Then yep. the people who he recruited are under him. Then the people they recruited are under them. So it flows. I get it. I can visualize it. I see it. It makes perfect sense. It does. And all that money is flowing from the bottom like a faucet that's ready to blow. Just boom. Like a, like a geyser. Yes, like a geyser. That's a much better accurate description. Key, today, are we talking about Ponzi schemes? We are talking about Ponzi schemes. And... You know I love a good Ponzi scheme. I wish I could be that top guy at the pyramid of a Ponzi scheme because they're the ones who make all the money and get away with it most of the time. Or at least they have the most fun spending it with the least amount of work. I'm going to start today because I am going to tell you a tale of the person who Ponzi schemes were actually named after. Like, this is how crazy this story is. He became the Ponzi of the Ponzi scheme. Is this an origin story? It is. Now, what he did was not unique, but how quickly he did it, like his rise and fall was like in less than a year. (laughs) Oh, wow. So, gather around, children. It's time for a tale of crime. Charles Ponzi was born Carlo Pietro Giovanni Gugli Elmo to Baldi Ponzi March 3rd 1882 in Lugo Emilia Romagna Italy Ponzi's ancestors had been well to do but the family had fallen on hard times and had little money Ponzi took a job as a postal worker but soon was accepted into the University of Rome, La Sapienza. His richer friends considered the university a, quote, four-year vacation. 
So he was inclined to follow them around to bars and cafes and the opera and things like that. Now, this resulted in Ponzi spending all his money. And four years later, he was broke and didn't have a degree. Wow. Right. So basically just wasted his time. Now, during this time, a number of Italians were immigrating to the U.S. and returning to Italy uh, as rich people. So Ponzi's family encouraged him to do the same, thereby returning his family to its lost glory. So on night, on November 15th, 1903, Ponzi arrived in Boston aboard the SS Vancouver. By his own account, Ponzi had $2.50 in his pocket after having gambled away the rest of his life savings during the voyage. So we can see already he's not the best with money. Like you're going to a, a brand new country to start a new life and you gamble all your money away while you're en route. Already, geez. Right. So he quickly learned English and spent the next few years doing odd jobs along the East Coast, eventually taking a job as a dishwasher in a restaurant. Ponzi managed to work his way up to the position of waiter, but was fired for theft and shortchanging customers. Now, in 1907, after some years of failing to do well in the U.S., Ponzi moved to Montreal, Quebec, Canada. And he became an assistant teller at a newly opened bank called Banco Zorossi, which uh, was a bank started by Luigi Zorossi to service the influx of Italian immigrants that were arriving in the city. By this time, Ponzi spoke English, Italian, and French, and that's what helped him get the job at Banco Zorossi. Now, it was at this bank that Ponzi first saw the scheme that he called robbing Peter to pay Paul, which would subsequently become known as a Ponzi scheme. So Banco Zorossi paid 6% interest on bank deposits, which was double the going rate at the time. Eventually, he found out that the bank was in serious financial trouble because of bad real estate loans, and Zerosi was funding the interest payments not through profits on investments, but by using the money deposited in newly opened bank accounts. So the bank eventually failed, and Zerosi fled to Mexico with a large portion of the bank's money. Now, Ponzi stayed in Montreal for some time, and he lived with Zerosi's family, helping them because Zerosi had abandoned them. But while he was doing that, he was planning to return to the U.S. and start over. But since he was basically penniless, this proved to be very difficult, so he thought up a plan. He walked into the offices of a former Zerosi customer called Canadian Warehousing, and he found that there was no one there, so he wrote himself a check for $423.58 in a checkbook that he found and forged the signature of Damien Fournier, who was the director of the company. He was confronted by the police, who had taken note of his large expenditures just after the forged check was cashed. So Ponzi didn't put up a fight. He just held out his wrist and said, I'm guilty. And he ended up spending three years at St. Vincent de Paul Federal Penitentiary, a bleak facility located in the outskirts of Montreal. So, I mean, he, he was like, okay, you caught me, whatevs. 
I'll, I'll go to jail. I guess yeah. he really didn't care. He didn't have nothing to lose. <laughs> right. So now, rather than inform his mother that he was in prison, he sent her a letter stating he had found a job as a, quote, special assistant to the prison warden. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I guess that that would explain why all his mail was coming from a prison instead of a real address. Dang, lying to my ma like that. So like he Ponzi wasn't he wasn't stupid. He he was always, you know, thinking on his he was quick on his feet. Now, after his release in 1911, Ponzi decided to return to the US, but he got involved in a scheme to smuggle Italian illegal immigrants across the border. He was caught and spent two years in Atlanta's prison. Here he became a translator for the warden. So, hey, he, he brought that into fruition. He was a special assistant for the warden in that particular prison. Yep. And he was intercepting or translating intercepted letters from a mobster named Ignazio the Wolf Lupo. Now, after his release from that prison term, he made his way back to Boston. That's where he met Rose Maria Necco, a stenographer whom he proposed marriage. Now, Necco came from an Italian-American family of immigrants who had a, fr- a small fruit stand in downtown Boston, and the two actually married in 1918. Now, this is where he starts to figure out his Ponzi scheme. In the summer of 1919, Ponzi decided to set up a small office at 27 School Street in Boston, coming up with ideas and writing to people he knew in Europe, trying to sell them as opportunities. A few weeks later, he received a letter from a company in Spain asking about the advertising catalog he had made up that, you know, was one of his little schemes. Inside the envelope was an international reply coupon, or an IRC, which was something he had never seen before. So he asked about the IRC, and he found a system, a weakness in the system, which would, in theory, allow him to make money. Now, the purpose of the IRC, do you know what those are? Have you ever used one before? An IRC? I don't think so. Okay, so the purpose of the IRC was to allow someone in one country to send it to a correspondent in another country who could then use it to pay postage for the reply. So if you're in Canada and I'm in Mexico and I'm sending you a letter and I'm I'm wanting you to reply, I buy the IRC in Canada, send it to you with my letter, you cash that in at a Mexican um, post office and they will change it into stamps so that you can reply back to me without having to pay for it. Oh, okay. So, IRCs were priced at the cost of postage in the country where it was purchased, but it could be exchanged for stamps to cover the cost of postage in the country where it was redeemed. So, if these values were different, there was a potential profit. Now, inflation after World War I had greatly decreased the cost of postage in Italy expressed into U.S. dollars. So that means an IRC could be bought cheaply in Italy and exchanged in the U.S. for stamps of higher value, which could then be sold. 
So you buy like say 20 IRCs in Italy, which will cost you, let's say $1 in American money. You send them over to America, but the stamps that they're worth is say $50 of American money. Okay, okay. So you sell them and you make that profit. Yeah, I see. I see. Okay. So Ponzi claimed that the net profit on these transactions after expenses and exchange rates was in excess of 400%. This was a form of arbitrage or profiting by buying an asset at a lower price in one market and immediately selling it in a market where the price is higher, which was and still is completely legal. Now, seeing this as an opportunity, Ponzi quit his job as a translator and set his IRC scheme into motion, but he needed a large capital outlay to start. He first tried to borrow money from banks, but they turned him down. Now, Ponzi, the ever optimist, he was undaunted by this. He set up his own stock company to raise money from the public. He also went to several of his friends in Boston and promised that he would double their investments in 90 days. Ponzi later shortened this to 45 days at 50% interest, therefore doubling investments in three months in a time where banks were only paying 5% annually. So the great returns available from postal reply coupons, he explained to them, made such incredible profits easy. Some people invested and were paid off as promised because, of course, you have to keep the first people in happy. So they received $750 interest, which would equate to $11,288.50 as of 2019 on initial investment. So that's that was just their interest alone. Their initial investments were $1,250, which would be $18,814.16 as of 2019. So that would be a very large investment, but also a very large return of interest. Right, right. And that's what, and that's what people buy into. Right. So in January 1920, a hundred years ago, wow, this is crazy. Ponzi started his company, the Securities Exchange Company, to promote the scheme. In the first month, 18 people invested in his company with a total of $1,800 or $23,353.12. He paid them promptly the very next month with the money obtained from new investors. Of course, because that is how a Ponzi scheme works. As long as there's money coming in, the people at the top are getting paid. So Ponzi set up a larger office, this time in the Niles building on School Street. Word spread and investments came in at an ever-increasing rate. Ponzi hired agents and paid them a generous commission for every dollar they brought in. In just one month's time between February and March of 1920, the total investment amounts had risen from $5,000 to $25,000, which is the equivalent of $60,000 to $320,000. 
Now, as the frenzy began building, Ponzi hired more agents to seek out new investors in New England and New Jersey. At the time, investors were being paid at impressive rates, which subsequently encouraged others to invest. By May 1920, he had made $420,000, which would be equivalent to $5,400 million. By June 1920, people had invested $2.5 million in Ponzi's scheme, which was which is equivalent to $32 million now. Wow. Jeez. By July, he was raking in a million dollars a week and rising. That's a million dollars in 1920 money. The equivalent to that as of 2019 is $12,973,953.87. Every week. That is insane. Oh my goodness. By the end of July, he was approaching almost a million dollars a day. Oh my God. Now, Ponzi began depositing the money in the Hanover Trust Bank of Boston, which was a small bank on Hanover Street, duh, in the mostly Italian North End. Now, he hoped that once his account was large enough, he could impose his will on the bank or even be made the bank's president. He bought a controlling interest in the bank through himself and several friends after depositing $3 million. Ponzi was making millions. People were mortgaging their homes and investing their life savings. Most did not even take their profits out, but instead let Ponzi reinvest them. And that's where he gets you. You you're reinvesting money that actually doesn't exist. So therefore, he's not losing anything. That is so scary. Yes. It's like it's is basically a house of cards. Meanwhile, has set up branches from Maine to New Jersey. Even though his company was bringing in fantastic sums of money each day, the simplest financial analysis would have shown the operation was running at a large loss. As long as money kept flowing in, existing investors could be paid with new money. This was the only method Ponzi had to continue providing returns to existing investors as he made no effort to generate legitimate profits. Now, Ponzi's initial investors consisted of working-class immigrants like himself, but gradually the news traveled upwards and many well-to-do Bostonians also invested in his scheme. In its heyday, nearly 75% of Boston's police force had invested, and he had investors that included the people closest to him, like his chauffeur and his brother-in-law. He was indiscriminate about who he allowed to invest from young newspaper boys investing a few dollars to high net worth individuals like a banker from Lawrence, Kansas, who invested $10,000, which is $129,739.54. Ponzi was willing to take a penny from anybody. (laughs) If you're going to invest, he was going to take it. Man, he done trick little Timmy in the newspaper route. That's jacked up. Hey, they thought they was going to be rolling in the dough like Mr. Ponzi. 
Now, although Ponzi was still paying back investors, it was mostly for money from subsequent investors, of course, and he had not yet figured out a way to actually change the IRCs into cash. So he's been taking all this money and hasn't even figured out how to get these dang on IRCs. He don't even know how to get the money. What the hell? He also realized that changing coupons to money was almost an impossibility. For example, for the initial 18 investors in uh, January of 1920, for their $1,800 investment, it would have taken 53,000 postal coupons to actually realize the arbitrage profits. Ain't nobody buying that many stamps. For the subsequent 15,000 investors that Ponzi had, he would have to have filled ships, freighters, everything full of postal coupons just to ship them to the U.S. from Europe. Regardless of this, Ponzi lived luxuriously as they all do. He bought a mansion in Lexington, Massachusetts and a locomobile, which was the finest car of that time. Do you know what a locomobile is? I know you're a car enthusiast. Now, I've not heard of a locomobile before. That sounds like something that will be on rails. <laughs> well, it was the finest car of that time. Ooh, okay. Hold on. I see it now. Yes, indeed. This looks really powerful, too, for its time. So, he had that locomobile going. He had him a mansion. He was doing it. Now, he had initially bought two first-class tickets to Italy for a delayed honeymoon with his wife, Rose, but he instead decided to change them to bring his mother from Italy to the U.S. in a first-class stateroom on an ocean liner. Hey, so, that's super nice. Hey, that's what I'm saying. At least do your mom right after you've been lying to her all these years. Still lying to her. Probably. She lived with Ponzi and Rose in Lexington, but unfortunately she died soon after. Now, Ponzi also bought a macaroni company and part of a wine company in an attempt to gain profits that could be used to repay the investors of his IRC scheme. So it's not like he wasn't trying. He just couldn't do what he thought he could with the IRCs. Now, Ponzi's rapid rise naturally grew suspicion. When a Boston financial writer suggested there was no way Ponzi could legally deliver such high returns in a short period of time, Ponzi sued him for libel and won $500,000 in damages. Jeez. Now, as libel laws at that time placed the burden of proof on the writer and publisher, this effectively neutralized any serious probes into his dealings for some time. So that was that was smart, you know. That would keep the people from, I guess, really, even if you looked into it, you wouldn't really make it known. So on July 24th, 1920, the Boston Post printed a favorable article on Ponzi, and that brought investors in faster than ever. The next day, after the article was published, Ponzi arrived at his office to find thousands of Bostonians lined up, waiting to give him their money. But of course, this success brought on more scrutiny. 
On July 26, the Post started a series of articles that asked hard questions about the operations of Ponzi's money machine. The paper contacted Clarence Barron, a financial journalist who headed Dow Jones and Company, to examine Ponzi's mm, scheme. Barron observed that though Ponzi was offering fantastic returns on investments, that he himself was not investing in his own company. Now, that should definitely be a red flag. If if I'm really making this kind of money from investing, wouldn't I invest my own money? Right, you would. So, Barron, then investments made with the Securities Exchange Company, 160 million postal reply coupons would have to be in circulation. However, only about 27,000 were actually in circulation. Now, the uh, United States Post Office stated that postal reply coupons were not being bought in any large quantity, either here in the U.S. or abroad. The gross profit margin in percent on buying and selling each IRC was colossal, but the overhead required to handle the purchase and the redemption of these items, which were of extremely low cost and sold individually, would have to exceed the gross profit. Barron noted that if Ponzi was really doing what he claimed to be doing, he would effectively be profiting at the expense of a government, either the governments where the tickets were bought or the U.S. government where they were being cashed in. For this reason, Barron argued that even if Ponzi schemes operation was legitimate, it was immoral to take advantage of a government in this manner. And I feel like if Mr. Barron lived in 2020, he would not feel that way. He would be like, take advantage of whatever government you need to, because they all are horrible. (laughs) I really think he would change his tune if he was living in these times. So the Post articles caused another panic run on the securities exchange, which is where investors start pulling out their money. So Ponzi paid out $2 million in three days to a wild crowd outside of his office. Now, he canvassed the crowd. He passed out coffee and donuts and cheerfully told them that they had nothing to worry about. Now, this got many to change their minds and leave their money with them. But this also attracted the attention of Daniel Gallagher, a United States attorney for the District of Massachusetts. Gallagher commissioned an audit of the security exchange company's books, an effort made difficult by the fact that Ponzi's bookkeeping system was merely index cards with investors' names written on them. No way. Now, in the meantime, Ponzi had hired a publicist named William McMasters. However, McMasters quickly, quickly became suspicious of Ponzi's endless talk about postal reply coupons as well as the ongoing investigation against him. He later described Ponzi as a financial idiot who did not seem to know how to add. The denouement for Ponzi began in late July when McMaster found several highly incriminating documents that indicated Ponzi was merely robbing Peter to pay Paul, which is basically what he was doing. 
McMasters went to Grozier, his former employer, with this information. Now, Grozier offered him $5,000 for his story, which was printed in the Post on August 2nd, 1920. McMaster's article declared Ponzi hopelessly insolvent, reporting that while he claimed $7 million in liquid funds, he actually had less and was at least $2 million in debt. With interest factored in, McMaster's wrote, Ponzi was as much as $4.5 million in the red. Now, this story set off a massive run, and Ponzi paid off in one day. On August 9th, the bank examiners reported that enough investors investors had cashed their checks on Ponzi's main account that it was almost certainly overdrawn. Allen had ordered the Hanover Trust Bank not to pay out any more checks from Ponzi's main account. He also orchestrated an involuntary bankruptcy filing by several small Ponzi investors. This move forced the Massachusetts Attorney General J. Weston Allen to release a statement that there was little to support Ponzi's claims of large-scale dealing in postal coupons. State officials then invited Ponzi note holders to come to the Massachusetts State House, furnish their names and addresses for the purpose of an investigation. On the same day, Ponzi received a preview of Pride's audits, which revealed that Ponzi was at least $7 million in debt. Dang. Now, on August 11th, it all came crashing down for Ponzi. First, the Post came out with a front-page story about his criminal activities in Montreal 13 years earlier, including his forgery conviction and his role at Zerossi's scandal-ridden bank. That afternoon, Bank Commissioner Allen seized Hanover's trust due to numerous irregularities. The commissioner thus inadvertently foiled Ponzi's plan to borrow funds from the bank vaults as a last resort in the event all other efforts to obtain funds failed. By the morning of August 12th, Ponzi's certificate of deposit at Hanover Trust, when it been, which had been worth $1.5 million, was reduced to $1 million after bank officials tapped into it to cover the overdraft. Even if he had been able to convert it to cash, he would have only had $4 million in assets. Amir reports that he was about to be arrested any day. In true Ponzi style, he surrendered to the federal agents that morning and accepted Pride's figures. He was charged with mail fraud for sending letters to his marks telling them that their notes had matured. He was originally released on $25,000 bail and was immediately rearrested on state charges of larceny, for which he posted an additional $10,000 bond. After the Post released the results of the audit, the bail bondsmen feared that Ponzi might flee and withdrew the bail for the federal charges. Attorney General Allen declared that if Ponzi managed to regain his freedom, the state would seek additional charges and seek bail high enough to ensure Ponzi would stay in custody. 
So they were like really dropping the hammer on him at this point. Yeah. Now this news brought down five other banks in addition to Hanover Trust. So he toppled six banks with this. Ponzi's investors were practically wiped out receiving less than 30 cents to the dollar. They saw their financial pictures all but destroyed. They lost about $20 million in 1920, which would be approximately $196 million in 2019. In two federal indictments, Ponzi was charged with 86 counts of mail fraud and faced life in prison. At the urging of his wife, Ponzi pled guilty on November 1st, 1920, to a single count before Judge Clarence Hale. Now, Judge Hale declared before sentencing, here was a man with all the duties of seeking large money. He concocted a scheme which, on his counsel's admission, did defraud men and women. It will not do to have the world understand that such a scheme can be carried out without receiving substantial punishment. So guess how many years was his substantial punishment? Hmm. For back then, I want to say 30 years. Mm. You're rougher than Judge Hale. Ponzi was sentenced to five years in federal prison. Bro. And he was released <laughs> after three and a half years. No. But was almost immediately indicted on 22 state charges of larceny. Remember, the state said, once these feds get, get finished with you, we're going to come after you. Now, this came as a surprise to Ponzi because he thought he had a deal calling for the state to drop any charges against him if he pled guilty to the federal charges. So with that being said, he sued, claiming that he would be facing double jeopardy if Massachusetts retried him for the same offenses spelled out in the federal indictment. Now, the case, Ponzi v. Fessenden, made it all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. On March 27, 1922, the Supreme Court ruled that federal plea bargains have no standing regarding state charges. It also ruled that Ponzi was not facing double jeopardy because Massachusetts was charging him with larceny while the federal government charged him with mail fraud, even though the charges implicated the same criminal operation. So they were really like splitting hairs to get him. Well-deserved, though. Yeah. So in October 1922, Ponzi was tried for the first 10 counts. Now, this is where they were smart. They didn't try for all 22 together. He was tried for the first 10 counts of larceny. Since he was unable to pay his debts, Ponzi served as his own attorney. And speaking as persuasively as he had with the thousands of investors that he duped, he was acquitted by the jury on all charges. Mm. He was tried a second time on five of the remaining charges and the jury deadlocked. Ponzi was found guilty at a third trial and was sentenced to an additional seven to nine years in prison as a, quote, common thief. No, common and notorious thief. So those last few charges is where they got him. See, but that's where they were smart. If they did all 22 the first time, he would have been off and that would have been that. 
So, it should be noted that during his various prison terms, Ponzi continued to receive Christmas cards and such from some of his more gullible investors, as well as requests from others to invest their money from his prison cell. I must say, these are people who believed in him. If they knew he was in jail for defrauding people and were still sending him Christmas cards and requests to reinvest more of their money. What? (laughs) So there was also efforts to have him deported as what they deemed an undesirable alien in 1922, but that was not successful. So in 1925, Ponzi was released on bail as he appealed the state conviction and he fled to a Springfield neighborhood in Jacksonville, Florida, where he launched a company called Charpon, which was just a mashup of his name, Charles Ponzi. So Charpon Land Syndicate, in which he offered investors tiny tracts of land, with some of them being underwater, and a promising 200% return in 60 days. In reality, it was just a scam that sold swampland to people. So, what they were getting a return? I guess he was going. He was saying they would flip it. I don't know. I don't even know how that was supposed to work. They were buying land and getting returns on it. It didn't really give an explanation on that, but people bought into it. Now, Ponzi was indicted by a Duval County grand jury on or in February 1926 and charged with violating Florida trust and security laws. A jury found him guilty on the security charges and a judge sentenced him to a year in the Florida State Prison. Ponzi appealed this conviction and was freed after posting a $1,500 bond. So he is really getting super light sentences. He is. So Ponzi traveled to Tampa, where he shaved his head, grew a mustache, and tried to flee the country as a crewman on a merchant ship bound for Italy. However, he revealed his identity to a shipmate, which you never do. Never tell anyone who you really are when you're trying to skip the country to flee charges to go to jail. Now, word spread to a deputy sheriff who followed the ship to its last American port of call in New Orleans and placed Ponzi under arrest. Ponzi was sent back to Massachusetts to serve out the rest of his prison term, which was seven more years in prison. Ponzi was released in 1934, and with that release came an immediate order to have him deported back to Italy. On October 7th, Ponzi was officially deported. Now, Rose stayed in the U.S. and divorced Ponzi three years later in 1937. In Italy, Ponzi jumped from scheme to scheme, but little really came of him. He eventually got a job in Brazil as an agent for Alalatoria Airline, but the airline shuttered during World War II. Ponzi spent the last years of his life in poverty, working occasionally as a translator. His health deteriorated, and in 1941, 
a heart attack left him considerably weakened. His eyesight had began failing, and by 1948, he was almost completely blind. A brain hemorrhage paralyzed his right leg and arm. Ponzi died in a charity hospital in Rio de Janeiro called the Hospital Sao Francisco de Assis of Federal University of Rio de Janeiro, which is a lot for a hospital name. He died there on January 18th, 1949. Wow. Some so, life. Really? And and his whole scheme was from like January and it was like over by November. Like that's because you made so much money in such a quick succession. If if like when you don't make that much money like that, it, they go on for a while. But when you just reel in millions and millions, like that's crazy. Right. He was attracting way too much attention, and there was too much happening in too short of a time frame. He got too rich too fast. He flew too close to the sun on gossamer wings. Oh, Icarus, when will you learn? When will you learn? Hey, man, Mr. Ponzi, ah, he he definitely he definitely went through a lot. And when he when he found his calling of doing schemes, he tried doing schemes in even like after that. And they didn't go well. But still, like he, he knew that was his calling. Like he knew what he needed to do to make money. And he tried to sell that swampland. Yeah, but. he tried, and unfortunately, he could never find a scheme good enough as the IRC scheme. Uh-uh. I, I'm really surprised I made so much money from um, from how from how IRCs work. I'm really surprised I made so much money, but hey, I guess, I guess anything's possible. Like a lot of people just didn't know; they just took his word for it. Like you know, he said he had never even seen what knew what it was until he received one. So probably just a lot of people didn't even know what they were and was like, oh, okay, well, you know, he studied and he's the businessman. Let's take his word for it. <laughs> he's the businessman. Yeah. Mm. Well, Keith, um, I really appreciate that story. That was a very interesting. I always thought Ponzi schemes, the name Ponzi was just like a, word, a made up word by people because, you know, it sounds like, like a, you know, like a bad term or something like that, but it's just a cool Italian name, as all yeah, of them really are. A scheme that was so, I guess, shocking in the 1920s. It is still holding strong today to be named a Ponzi scheme. Yeah, he made an impact on the entire U.S. economy right there. So, Key, my, my, my Ponzi schemer the grand master of this scheme is a Belgian man. Mm, and Belgian waffles. He, the picture I found of him, he had his face printed on dollar bills. He is a very, he has a very astonishing story. It's pretty, pretty short, but he's done a lot in his time of uh, being the head of uh, his scheme. Let's hear it. All right. So Jean-Pierre Van Rossum was born on May 29th, 1945 in Bruges, Belgium. Born to 
Jean Van Rosem and Hermana Patten. Not much is written about his childhood, though after high school, he was a star economic student at the University of Ghent. He made money on the side doing homework for other students, which included writing 200-page essays for each client. He became a Marxist, a supporter of the political and economic theories of Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels. Then won a scholarship to study under Lawrence Klein, a Nobel Prize winner who pioneered the use of computers to predict market fluctuations. Developed in the 1960s, the Wharton Economic Trick Forecasting Model was a system used to forecast fluctuations. This machine also studied national products, exports, investments, and consumption, and the effect of them of changes in taxation, public extraditure, oil price, and other variables. Van Rossum would later start his own company in the U.S. But what happens to this company? How did this one go down? He went bankrupt, splurging on heroin and served time for fraud. Sweet gracious! Not heroin! Yeah, so he had a very, um, a huge downfall there. And so after he was released from jail... He returned back to Europe in the early 1980s. And he intended to join the Bader-Meinhof gang. Do you know what this gang is? Mm, No, but it sounds very interesting. Okay, what if I told you that this is the Red Faction Army? Mm, I am not familiar with the Red Faction Army, but they sound dangerous. The Red Army Faction was a West German far-left militant organization found in 1970. So he intended to join them, but instead he ran off with the wife of a rich industrialist, to which he later commented by saying, quote, I decided to punish capitalism by taking his wife, unquote. And after they ran away to finance her, sp- her shopping habit, he started up another business as a stock market guru, founding Moneytron, an investment firm that had a supercomputer able to predict market movements, the same style of system that his mentor, Lawrence Klein, was renowned for. Now, the supercomputer was a mystery, as no one ever got to see the machine. It was kept behind the locked door inside of his office. In theory, the machine would yield endless returns. And even though no one saw the machine and no one could really find out how it worked, this did not stop investors from buying in. Wait a minute, because that's a large red flag. No one can see the machine? No one can see it. So just blind trust is what he's working with or what he's asking for. Yep, just just blind trust. And I guess he has some figures of um, how it worked. I'm I'm pretty sure he's compared it a lot to Klein's machine. Of how you know it predicted things and saying that this one predicts the market. So, whatever you invest in, it will go to the highest, the highest reachability at this time, and your you know your the outcome will be tremendous. And they just trusted them, I guess. Sounds legit. Sounds legit to me too. Included in the many people that invested millions of dollars to MoneyTron. The royal family also invested 
into Van Rossum's scheme just by him carrying himself as a wealthy and successful man. By 1989, he claimed the firm was managing $7 billion in assets. But in reality, he actually only accumulated $34,692,321,673 Belgian francs, which is $860 million. He was taking money from new investors to pay older ones and bankroll his own extravagant lifestyle. At of one course, because that's what you do. That's what you do. But he went extremely all out. If Charles Ponzi was a schemer in the 80s or 90s, he would have probably done the same route right here. So at one point, he owned a Formula One racing team, the Monitron Onyxes, two aircrafts, 108 classic and racing Ferraris, and a $4 million yacht, which he named the Destiny of $89 million. I mean, I have no problem with any of the things he bought. It sounds pretty legit. Sound like a GTA 5 status right there. Yes, I mean, these all sound like sound investments. So this Formula One team he got, they were just average as far as F1 standards go. And the one of the Grand Prix in 1989, they placed 10th of 21 cars, 21 teams. But their biggest success was placing third place at the Grand Prix of Portugal with driver Stefan Johansson. So, you know, he wasn't like bringing home the big old, big old gold or platinum trophies or anything like that, but they were still, they were still okay as far as F1 teams go. Yeah, I mean, he could have bought a better team, but oh well. Oh well. He was proud of it too. He has lots of pictures with the, um, with like a miniaturized F1 car. And of course, like, you know, him wearing like the Money Tron logo and stuff, looking, looking swaglicious and everything, you know? You're going to commit. You might as well commit all the way. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It only took that decade to end Ben Rossum's empire. It collapsed in 1990 after a $50 million check to a French businessman bounced. This translates to 276,471,237 francs. Who write the check that big, first of all? <laughs> you got me. I, Why would I, you not write a series of small checks? I guess I have no idea. But yeah, I definitely would have I definitely would have spread that one out a bit. At least prolong the inevitable. Right. So his check bounce, what do you think his next move would have been as a person? What do you think Ben Rosum's next move would have been if his if his scheme seems to be crumbling? I would say when your scheme seems to be crumbling, you double down and try to find another scheme to hurry up and make money to fund that first scheme. Okay, that's a very, very appropriate answer. Van Rossum took part in the Belgian elections with his own party, Rossum. The name of the party stood for Radical Onvomers en Social Strijders voor een Eerlijker Machadbik, which translates to Radical Inventors and Social Warriors for a Fairer Society. 
So he went to politics. That was his that was his escape route. That seems very um noticeable, like very not inconspicuous. Like you would think you kind of try to fade into the background and not be seen. Yeah, he he went right into the spotlight with this one. Right. So he started his political career partly out of political enthusiasm. In the election of 1991, Rosen took three seats in the Chamber of Representatives and one in the Senate. Van Rosen took a seat in the Chamber of Representatives. Van Rosen calls quite a bit of stir with this when a convinced Republican during his inauguration of King Albert screamed, Vival la République de Europe, Vival Julian Laurent. Julian Laurent was a communist who had cried out in 1950 during the swearing-in of King Ludford II. Van Rossum in 1991 was also sentenced to five years in prison for fraud, but parliamentary immunity delayed his sentence until 1995. When he finally did serve time, he mainly focused on his literature, and he wrote a personal diary called the Gevan Genzumbo, which translates to prison book, which he later published. <laughs> prison book, like, very uh, straight to the point. That's right. He commented on this by saying, quote, The good news is that there will be one capitalist less in the world. The bad news is that he is me, unquote. He's very honest with these things. He's, I like him. I like him. Oh, I yeah, mean, he... not honest as far as stealing people's money, but, you know. Yeah, when it comes to like commenting on his failures, he'll 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 own up to it. Around 2000, Van Rossum made his big comeback as a media figure. He starred in season one of the Dutch version Big Brother VIP, lasting only a few episodes before getting evicted. Various products related to his name came onto the market, such as bicycles from the Tessarosum brand. And at that time, there was even talk of setting up a large professional cycling team to promote that bicycle brand in which Frank Vandenbroek, among others, would go cycling. Nine years later, on March 26th, he announced in Paracanvis program that his party, Rosum, will return to elections in 2011. However, this plan fell through because these elections were brought forward to 2010. But in January 2012, he revived the party, but decided against participating in the 2012 local elections. Rosum did participate in the 2014 elections, for which he drew the Flemish list in Antwerp. The party obtained 0.24% of the votes in the Flemish parliament and 0.17% in the federal parliament, which was more than enough for a seat. In the recent years up until his death, Van Rosum lived a more secluded life. Van Rosum died of natural causes in December 14, 2018 in Jet, Belgium. Wow, that was very recent. Yes, it um yeah, it was he um you lived to be like 73. Well, since this was not a sad horrific type of episode today 
I guess we don't really have to bring it up unless you just really have something. I have a quote by Van Rosum, actually, that um that I can say. What, don't do heroin? <laughs> no, no. If you show a million returns to millionaires, they no longer ask questions. That's it. Well, okay. I mean, it would it would be a great quote, like you know, like the late Rick James saying, "Cocaine is one hell of a drug," but unfortunately, it's not what we have here. Well, children do not get involved in Ponzi schemes. If anything requires you to bring other people in in order to get money out of it, and you're not actually selling a product, it's a Ponzi scheme. It's a pyramid. It's a multi-level marketing, whatever they want to call it. If it requires you to bring other people in before you can actually get money out of it and there's no actual product, you're being ponzied. Don't do it. The money sounds great, but it's not what you think. Only the person at the very tip top is the one who's really making money. So that's our lesson for today. You know, I love me a good Ponzi scheme. Maybe the next episode we can visit Bernie Madoff because he, it, it should be called a Madoff scheme now. They should retire Ponzi after what he did. So, Bernie we'll Madoff. Have to that. Yes, we'll have to yeah. save Bernie Madoff for another Ponzi episode. Now, I do remember um, Robert De Niro playing him in a movie. Yes, well, we'll definitely have to tell his story because he was legit legit stealing everybody's money well all right then another time well with that being said everybody join us on our facebook group the we shouldn't talk about this podcast group on instagram and on twitter at wstat underscore pod and if you have a suggestion for us you can email us at we shouldn't talk about this at gmail.com. And if you're listening on an Apple product, please, please leave us a five star rating. If you love us, a four star rating. If you like us, if you don't, just don't even go to the rating system at all. Tell somebody that you don't like to listen to us as a punishment. And there you go. And there you go. So, with that being said, I'm Key. And I'm V. And this is me. We shouldn't talk about this. Thanks for listening. Bye.